0: Are you
1: ready? A yes. boost? Are you ready for a boost? How do you feel about
2: that book? We love those nurses. That was beautiful. Oh, you
1: know,
0: black women got them in. The movement folks got them in.
3: Uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds opened the eyes of millions of americans and millions of people all over the world perhaps we can step into
4: a different way of being to actually step into the promised land but first it will require of us to confront our ghastly failures to tell the truth about who we are
5: hey everyone i'm tremaine lee president joe biden is in the white house in no small part thanks to black voters of the black vote went to Biden, handing him big victories over Donald Trump in key swing states. But now that he's in office, what comes next for Black America? After four deeply divided years of scandal, rebellion and plague, the Trump era ended in a fog of violence. democracy our democracy was nearly brought to its knees as the smoke clears on this new day and a new administration rises in the White House questions remain about what we've lost and what we stand to gain because in this moment Americans are hurting and few feel the pain more than black Americans we've weathered a summer of police violence and unrest suffered a COVID-19 death rate almost three times that of whites. Our children have fallen further and faster in this disrupted school year. And for Black Main Street, the economic fallout from the pandemic seems to have no bottom. Yet we continue to demand that our lives matter in the streets and at the polls. The 2020 election marked a great high, but we also witnessed American politics, weaponized against us. The lie of a stolen election peddled by Donald Trump and his enablers hid a much more sinister motivation to disenfranchise millions of voters, millions of black voters. Those who helped flip states blue by flexing their voting power in places like Atlanta, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia. The lie whipped right-wing extremists, white supremacists, and Trump loyalists into a riotous frenzy that ended with the deadly storming of the Capitol building on January 6th. It was an attack on democracy, but don't get it twisted. This was always an attack on the black franchise and racial progress. The Confederate flag, a symbol of white supremacy, flew high that day. Now, President Biden and VP Harris have promised to make racial equity a focal point of the administration. He's nominated the most diverse cabinet in history, and he's already signed a wave of executive orders aimed at chipping away at systemic racism. But black folks have been promised much in the past, and time and again, we've been given symbolism and feel good gestures instead of meaningful change. After all, The pendulum of democracy and equity in America is always in motion, somewhere between progress and regression. So in this moment, the question we ask from Black America is whether we are entering a new chapter or simply turning the page on a very old story. This is Can You Hear Us Now? The Next Chapter. A conversation about race, justice, and a way forward. To unpack this moment, I'm joined by co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund, Latasha Brown. Host of the podcast How to Citizen with Baratunde, Baratunde Thurston. Late show band leader, recording artist and activist, John Batiste. Baratunde, let's start with you, man. Uh, Black voters saved Joe Biden's campaign when they lifted him to a win in the South Carolina primary. Then in the general, Biden won swing states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Michigan, with big showings in heavily Black cities. When you take stock of everything we've seen, what do you make of this moment? But more importantly, what does Biden owe to
2: Black voters? Thanks for having me, Tremaine. Good to be here with your family. It's yes, nice. Sir. To, just This is a good conversation. I love the setup, uh, good context. Setting. So, so Black folks uh, have been saving Joe Biden throughout the past uh, year plus, have been saving America for the past... 400 years plus, and it seems to be part of our function to remind this country of what it wrote down on the beautiful pieces of paper and to uh, to drag the country heavily resistant, though it may be, toward the promises that it has made. Uh, what I make of this moment is still a bit of relief. There was uh, a compression on my chest uh, and a persistent anxiety over the past four years of a ratcheting up of dehumanization and a permission granted by the top office holder in the land toward all sorts of ugly. And it is it is a relief to have that phase of the threat to our democracy over. Um, what Joe Biden owes to black people and to black America, in some ways the same as what he owes to all of America, a competent, functioning government representing the collective will of the people. Uh, he owes us in particular just constant applause, constant thanks. Like there shouldn't be a day that goes by where Joe Biden's just not like Also, by the way, thank black people. Like he could be ribbon cutting on a post office, I don't care, just like also thank black people. And then back up that gesture with more meaningful, not just chipping away, but hacking away at the systems of oppression and creating a pathway out of COVID, especially for black folk who've been hit so hard, out of these economic doldrums, which we've been living in since well before COVID, but which your package so accurately pointed out, we've been especially hard hit by. Uh, So there's a lot. But I think they're off to a decent start, beyond decent start to be honest. And I just want them to keep it up because as you said, we have been in places like this before. Fred, there certainly has been a a lot, right? And Latasha,
5: I wanna come to you. In Biden's victory speech, he said that he's going to have the backs of black Americans. Uh, But your organization tweeted last week, quote, a lot of people care about the black vote, but not black voters. How can black folks in particular hold the Biden administration to its promises?
0: Now, I think the work, as we were talking about, you know, our work of 365 days out of the year. It's not just about elections. We're talking about transformative politics. We're talking about that we Black people didn't leave anything on the field. We put it all on the field. Not only did we decide on the nomination, not only did we encourage and heavily organize to make sure that there was a Black woman that was VP, not only did we deliver when it related to um, delivering the, the, the White House to the Democrats, but we also delivered the Senate. We gave them the best possible conditions to be able to govern. And in there, there there's an expectation that we will start seeing policy that will actually look out for and improve the lives of black people. This wasn't just about participation. This is far beyond applause. This is really around how are you gonna fundamentally shift the lives of our communities. When we're looking at black women, you know, there's all of this talk about how black women showed up, yet black women are 68% um of wage workers what we do know is there was a report done even by cnn in december that talked about the 140,000 jobs that were lost That were all women primarily black and brown women actually white women gained so there is a fundamental issue of how this um this this pandemic is impacting our community how we're talking about the elimination of poverty there are things when i'm thinking about in the first hundred days I want to see voting rights restored. I want to see a stronger approach and policy on voting rights. If in fact we are the vote that helps to really our enfranchise, helps to protect democracy, then in fact we should see that same kind of diligence around protecting and expanding our
5: right to vote. John, the Biden win came in the midst of a pandemic, and after a summer of protests after the death of George Floyd, protests that you actually played a part in. But talk about the role of activism this year, and how the demands of people in the streets turned into action.
6: You have to think about the level of apathy that we saw in the 2016 election, and the level of engagement that we saw in this past election. And you have to see that transformation was manifest in the activism that we saw. People of the new generation, people coming up who haven't experienced the civil rights movement, haven't experienced all of these things, are seeing it unfold yet again and seeing that we haven't dealt fully with things that are part of the American ethos that we try to sweep under the rug. So when I saw what I saw in the street, it was people not only who understood the importance of activism, like my grandfather, like people in my family, people who came up marching and understanding that we have to stand up but there were also people from the next generation. And they were seeing that this is something that we don't say anything, we don't get out there and do something, nothing will happen. So I was pleased not only to see that we have a new president and a new administration and Kamala Harris, I I have to always say Kamala Harris because I don't think we even hyped that up enough and understand (laughs) the level of what that is. But also on top of that, we have historic levels of engagement that we have to maintain if we wanna see a long-term transformation.
5: Latasha, the fact that black voters came out in force for Biden is even more notable when you think about all the barriers to actually voting, just getting there, right? We saw long lines, huge delays in the postal service, not to mention the pandemic, Trump's false claims of voter fraud after the election was called. Talk about the modern day voter suppression that black voters still face today.
0: I just want to reiterate what you just said. I, I want people to understand how extraordinary it was for the black turnout, but in spite of it, it wasn't the black turnout. You know, I've heard a lot of messages that saying, oh, this shows the strength of democracy. No, it was a demonstration of the strength of people and people who are determined and who are resilient and decide that they're going to operate in their agency. And so what we saw is we saw black voters, in spite of the voter suppression, just in the state of Georgia, we had to file a lawsuit where the Secretary of State dropped almost 200. Thousand voters saying that they had moved when there's no evidence that they had moved that were not allowed to vote in this last election cycle unless they re registered. We're seeing, we saw a uh, from the 19 to, um, from the Voting Rights Act when the Voting Rights Act um, was gutted. You know, what we know is that there was an enormous amount of voting, uh, vote polling sites that were closed. You know, it's been an ongoing attack. On the enfranchisement of black voters, but what we have shown since our since our uh, arriving on the shores of America that we are resilient people that we will constantly even rise above. Um, What some of those levels of oppression that we've seen, right? But that still doesn't mean that it's not difficult. It still doesn't mean that we should actually, we spend an enormous amount of time trying to address voter suppression, when in fact, that should not be the responsibility of organizations like mine on the ground. Literally, if we are in a democracy, let, let it be real. I think it's really poetic that in a moment that at ground zero in Georgia, where we all witnessed in 2018, how black voters were um, disenfranchised, that that it would boil down this election cycle, that those very voters were the ones that were dependent on, could we protect democracy for all of us, not just black vote.
5: Baratunde Latasha connects what's happening now, clearly a through line to the past. And I want to ask you, you know, Trump's claims of a stolen election ended in the deadly Capitol riots with the Confederate flag flown inside the halls of Congress a backlash really against an election won by black voters. Do you think this moment is one of actual progress, given what we've seen, given the craziness of everything? Is it actually a moment of progress?
2: I have to, for my own sanity, believe that when we move forward, it counts. Um, That when we rise above the limits that America sets on us and bring America with us, that that is progress. It doesn't mean it's progress that maintains itself on its own. It doesn't make the progress inevitable. And I like what Latasha said. It's not just democracy, it's people. And when we fully breathe into that word and accept it, democracy is people. It's people power. And so it's not a distant institution that just succeeds because you said it should succeed. If democracy succeeds, it's because people power it. And so America's persistent Hesitance, resistance to its own manifest destiny, to freedom, to democracy, a country that's allegedly the oldest democracy in the world, but for most of that time, did not legally allow participation from most of its members. The a twist, that's a trick. And, and uh, it's painful to see the innovation in anti-democracy, and the use in particular of black people to drive that point home. Uh, this country is willing to hurt its collective self to make a point of hurting us in particular. So I think it's important for us to always acknowledge that that's what's going on, that this isn't very new. While we don't get stuck in just the despondency of that acknowledgement, and yes, we should celebrate progress, but we should remind the whole nation and ourselves that it's people power which allows that progress to be pursued and keep pursuing it and keep pushing
5: John, one of Biden's biggest talking points lately, and I'm sure you've heard it, is the call for unity. Can or should unity be the priority after the events of last year? What change or accountability needs to happen first before we move on and there's any talk of unity?
6: Well, the priority should be treating each other as if we're human beings. There needs to be a reassertion through policy of our humanity. And I think that's a collective call. We've been caught in division and we've been caught in rage And without some level of catharsis, some level of connectivity and unity, we're going to become more and more less human. We're going to become something that is not really what democracy is about and not really what life is about. So I believe that unity should be the end result of policy that's rooted in the affirmation of our collective humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's something that when we look at it and we speak the truth about that and we look at each other and we understand, wow, did you see what happened at the Capitol? Look at what happened in Katrina, in New Orleans. We've seen this sort of thing that leaves black people in the dust and leaves many people of all classes and all races in the dust because of a lack of assertion of humanity through policy. And people just say, okay, well, the money's coming in, okay, well, the votes are coming in. No, let's actually look at it, because now we've seen it's tearing our country apart. And it exceeds far beyond us as a people. Look at the climate. Look at everything that's around us. Look at where we are. (laughs) This is where we are right now. So let's accept the fact that the policy doesn't actually affirm people. (laughs) The policy is more about statistics and about scale than it actually is about people. That's what we have to really understand
0: can i give um john a, can i get a, a high five on that a virtual high five
5: <laughs> we're a family here go ahead and do it
0: <laughs> i just want to give a virtual high five that's it that's that's it you know there's is there. we talk about democracy as if the end goal is democracy the end goal is not democracy the end goal is the advancement of humanity That's the end goal to the extent that democracy facilitates that so that people have a sense of agency. That is what it's about. And so constantly, if we're we're shifting a political landscape that all that centers is this idea of for the love of humanity as its frame, what kind of policies will we see? What kind of political landscape would we see? What kind of elected officials? And I just think that it's really, we have to shift this conversation. That it's not about democracy being some altruism. It is democracy to the extent that it facilitates the advancement of humanity. That is literally what this is about for me. And I think this is what this is about around the entire context of sharing power. We're spreading love, but building power.
5: And we can do both. It's not about democracy, it's about humanity. I wanna thank you all, Latasha Brown, Baratunde Thurston, John Batiste, thank y'all so much. Early on, the COVID-19 pandemic was called the great equalizer, it's been anything but. And now that a solution is here, the vaccine rollouts been unequal too. A Kaiser Health analysis found that white Americans are being vaccinated at double the rate of black Americans in some states thanks to barriers to access and the systemic failure to address some well-earned hesitancy and mistrust around vaccines in the Black community. NBC News Now correspondent Priscilla Thompson dives into this ugly, complicated history.
7: For some in America, it has been difficult to understand why many Black people don't trust the COVID-19 vaccine the healthcare system
8: that is untrustworthy and has been for African Americans for since the inception of this country. That's something that most of us, including myself, were taught as young children. Just because there's a vaccine, there's a pandemic, and you want everyone to take it, you can't flip a switch on that quickly.
7: That distrust is rooted in a history of racist healthcare care practices that are often epitomized by one example, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study.
0: They were not Uh, told that they had syphilis, and then when penicillin came out, they were not allowed uh, to get the penicillin for uh, treatment or cure.
7: For 40 years, the federal government deliberately withheld treatment for syphilis from hundreds of Black men in Alabama, allowing them to go insane and even die. One of those men was Head's father, Freddie. What was so terrible about that was, first of all, they were not told that they were being studied. The study ended in 1972, only after the Associated Press broke the story, prompting public public outrage. Before that, there was J. Marion Sims, an American physician hailed as the, quote, father of modern gynecology.
1: And he developed this technique by experimenting on enslaved women with that anesthetic. Yeah, until very recently, there was a statue of him
2: across from Central Park.
7: Then there's the case of Henrietta Lacks, a cancer patient at Johns Hopkins University in the 1950s. Lacks cells were harvested for medical research without her knowledge or consent. The resulting HeLa line of cells has been crucial in medical research and lucrative medical advancements. Her family went decades without knowing about the research or receiving compensation or an apology. These examples are pervasive in our history. Involuntary sterilizations targeting poor women and women of color, experiments to determine the impact of radioactive materials in the human body.
1: And these stories do get told and retold in barbershops, in beauty salons, in black churches. And the thing that gives them staying power is that people have similar experiences with the medical system in their everyday lives.
9: So there's always that fear, like when we go into the hospitals, go into the doctor's offices, you don't get the same treatment
7: oftentimes as our white counterparts. Dolores Williams was hesitant about getting the vaccine at first. Um, I've heard of too many horror
9: stories of people just going to, let's say, just a regular physician for a checkup. Um, They're being rushed through the process. The, the physicians aren't really listening to them. They send them out with, take a Tylenol or an Aleve, and eventually it turns into something
7: sometimes, you know, more serious than that. Williams ultimately got her vaccine, an important step in an effort to start a new chapter in the relationship between public health and the black community.
5: Here to discuss Infectious Disease Physician, Dr. Matisse Lashwayo-Davis first of the podcast, How to Citizen with Baratunde, Baratunde Thurston, and Pennsylvania State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta. Thank you all for joining us. Dr. Davis, I want to start with you. Addressing vaccine hesitancy in the black community is a passion of yours, and you have real-world experience with your role on the St. Louis Board of Health. Uh, Given everything that we know about where we've been, how should public health officials be talking to the black community right now?
8: Well, first
9: of all, I think that it's essential to acknowledge that this has happened. I don't know that I've heard that enough in communities and certainly not at the highest levels of leadership. Apologizing, then being thoughtful about who trusted messengers in our community are. This message is not one that will even be accepted even after an apology and after that sort of acknowledgement. We have community leaders who are on this panel today who have done this work in their communities, who have the trust of their communities and who should be sponsored with actual funding and policy to support the education they need to do and the leadership around vaccine administration.
5: Baratunde, the Biden administration brought on Marcella Nunez Smith, a sister, uh, to lead the Health Equity Task Force. How do you want to see the Biden administration tackle
2: the toll we've seen this pandemic take on black Americans? uh, First of all, thank you for having me. This is the blackest panel I've been on in a long time. These names are amazing. I love all of us. As far as what I'd love for this task force or for this administration to do, uh, I'd follow the doctor's lead on this. Acknowledgement is a really important part of the process. It's an essential step in the process. And there's a lot of talk of healing going on, but it's hard to heal when you don't acknowledge the harm which caused the need to heal in the first place. And with respect to our community and this deadly pandemic, I think a very transparent and open acknowledgement that we have failed. We failed our collective selves because we have failed black americans in particular brown americans and poor americans even more broadly and that has allowed this pandemic to spread unchecked because we decided to sacrifice certain communities over police those communities under resource those communities and to connect the dots not just to historic vaccine over under vaccination and access to health care but the very present issues because that stuff is still present in our bodies. It's still present in how we show up with trust or not emotionally. So I want this administration to continue to earn that trust by acknowledging the history upon which these harms have been built and the distrust lives.
5: Rep. Kenyatta, what's your take? You know, your city of Philly helped Biden win Pennsylvania. How do you wanna see him deliver for black folks there, especially when it comes to handling the disparities we've seen with the coronavirus pandemic?
4: Yeah, thank you so much. You know, the package you just showed with Dr. Sanford, she was vaccinating folks right in the heart of my district in the Leah Kors Center. And we have, the doctor talked about it, you know, spent months while vaccine was being developed and tested, doing town halls, having conversations, trying to engage people in the community who not only are, you know, distrustful and mistrustful, but it's based in something real. Right? I think sometimes people are acting as if this is um, an abstraction. No, it's based in something real. It's based in something that's ongoing. And what's so frustrating to me as a legislator is that in the beginning of, of this pandemic, we saw the reports that Black and brown folks um, were getting this infection at higher rates and dying at higher rates. And now, as there is a vaccine that could protect people, of course, the same group, which has hit first and worse, is now somehow at the back of the line. And so, you know, it's a part of the reason here in Philadelphia, myself and many of my colleagues, you know, has called for the removal of our uh, commissioner of the Department of Health, who's absolutely, you know, failed in this account. Philadelphia is a, is a black city, pretty black city. Only 14 percent of black folks have been vaccinated at this point. That metric is unacceptable. And so, so my take is that government has to respond. Government has to do its job effectively. That we have to get our people safe and we have to continue to um, you know, combat the
5: fact that they haven't been so far and that the vaccine has not gotten out um, in an equitable way. Rep. Kenyatta, I want to stick with you for a second. Obviously, the black community is ground zero for this pandemic, but what about the economic toll, right? Black people are disproportionately essential workers, putting them in the line of fire, working jobs that are unsafe and underpaid. We're also the group with the highest unemployment rate. Talk about that for a minute, the broad ripples here and the economic impact. So this has been
4: um, you know, one of
5: the cruelest parts of this pandemic.
4: Not only has it taken so many lives and stripped so many people of their livelihoods, but what it has done is really pour salt into a wound that has already existed. And so, you know, I'm happy that folks are talking about the eviction uh, crisis, but the reality is there was an eviction crisis in my district before I knew what COVID-19 was. Um, we're talking about the fact that we've praised essential workers, we've praised frontline workers, and yet still we can't get the majority uh, party in Harrisburg where I work to actually raise our minimum wage from a 725 starvation level wage to something that has a level of dignity with it. And so what I've been repeating to people over and over again is, okay, if COVID is making you pay attention to some of these systemic issues that we have in our community, um, let's take this opportunity to address them and not just address them in the context of COVID started this or COVID created it. COVID has exacerbated things that have been wrong for a very long time, and unfortunately, Um, Here in Pennsylvania, we're still fighting to get the political will to do some of the basic things like raise wages, um, invest the money in our schools to get the type of ventilation that would make it a bit safer for our young people to go back. All the basics. We're still fighting for this, but this pandemic has exposed the fact that this didn't start four years ago. It didn't start a year and a half ago.
5: These are things that have been in our communities for a long time. Dr. Davis, racial disparities are at work as we make our way out of the pandemic, too. Uh, vaccine hesitancy aside, Black people also face barriers to actually getting the vaccine if they want it. What are those barriers, and how should public health officials address them?
9: This has been a point of great frustration for me. We are very quick to talk about vaccine hesitancy and to focus on the past, which must be done. but. This is not happening in isolation. There can be two very real um, things going on here. One is a group of people that are valid in their mistrust of government and scientific communities based on this abhorrent abhorrent history of of, of misuse and abuse uh, towards them, towards our bodies, towards our people, right? But we also have a large group a large group of people in our community that want these vaccines, and who once again are being left behind. The administration of vaccines in our community is woefully inadequate across the country. And I think multiple things are happening here. Number one, we have had a lack of leadership, federal leadership from the beginning of this pandemic. We should not be at this point a year out. And so that has left states and local communities to figure out how to do this really with their hands tied behind their back. Now we have an administration that has put as one of their cornerstones racial equity, has put leaders in charge of this, and we need to see this happening. We need to see this as a coordinated effort from the top down. We need funding we have been told that funds will be procured from the defense fund and that needs to happen because our communities cannot administer these vaccines the trusted messengers the community partners and community organizations i talked about earlier cannot do this without funding it's more about it's more than just vaccines We need vaccinators, they need to be trained. You need the resources and the places to store these vaccines safely. You need protocols that exist to be able to do this um, where there's two shots and to coordinate for people to come back. This needs to happen with a better effort. And so while vaccine hesitancy is very real, access is also very real as we've heard today on this panel and must be addressed.
5: The needs are great with little time to spare. Uh, Dr. Matish Lasueyo-Davis, Baratunde Thurston, Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, thank you all so very much. Thank Thank you, thank you. Coming up, for the first time in American history, voters sent a woman to the White House, Vice President Kamala Harris. What does it mean for her to be the first and how to ensure she's not the last? After the break.
8: The institutes of medicine have published data that african-american health disparities are lessened when the people providing the care are culturally competent african-american physicians there's a shared experience there's a shared struggle there is more patience there's an understanding of their social environment And all of that contributes to better health outcomes. And this beautiful woman is 94 years young. We're in predominantly African-American communities and people are coming to us to get coronavirus testing, to get coronavirus vaccine. Send those medical corps reserve people to us to support what we're doing. Send those reserve people to us because we have the trust. I think what we've shown is where you give the vaccine and who is giving the vaccine. Matters all month long.
9: Let's start
0: today. Let's go 2021.
9: Kicking off the new year strong. It's time to take care
0: of you with healthy foods, fitness, you're
9: incredible, and how to jumpstart your love life. You fit is winning. So join us and start today.
4: Make no mistake, what happened that day was an insurrection against the United States government. Is this the beginning of something or the end of something? Should Donald Trump be ostracized from the Republican Party as you know it? If it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press.
3: deadly siege on Congress. Lawmakers move to safe locations. There's two more weeks left in this presidency. Where is this going? Despite what we've been through, there will be a transfer of power at the
6: U.S. Capitol. NBC Nike News with Lester Holt.
7: You're watching NBC News now. We've got some breaking news. We
4: actually saw a large convoy
2: of the National Guard come through here.
7: It's news made for your streaming world. Live weekdays starting at 6 a.m. Eastern.
4: Breaking news in our changing world. Download the NBC News app.
0: We are a country of laws. A democracy built on free and fair elections. Where the majority, not the mob, rules. And no rioter, no act of insurrection or domestic terror, no desperate despot can take away all we have built, all that we stand for, and all we hold dear.
9: end, I feel like the image of just having a black woman in general is like it's a, it's a huge thing, and I just,
8: I do want that. It gives women of color, minorities, you know, hope. Like, we can dream big. Women of color have been the backbone of this country for a very, very long time, and it feels good to actually have one of us in power with us sitting a black woman, an Asian woman, all these
9: different barriers that Kamala Kem- has broken. For a long time, I didn't feel like there were any young women who looked like me that I, and I couldn't picture myself in it, but now I really can. Not just because of Kamala, because because like, uh, women like Alcazia cortez I can, I can picture young women in like
5: politics. A long list of white male vice presidents now punctuated at the end by a black woman, Kamala Harris, shattering the glass ceiling as she took her oath of office, rising higher in our nation's politics than any woman ever. It's a moment made for the history books. A black and South Asian girl dream big so big she couldn't be contained by anyone else's expectations. Not about what college to attend, or what career path to follow, or how she'd use her power in a criminal justice system that so often devours people who look just like her. Or the kind of politics she'd embrace, or the heights those politics would take her. Prosecutor, attorney general, senator, vice president of the United States.
9: So help me God.
5: Kamala Harris, the daughter of an Indian mother and Jamaican father, raised in the cradle of the Bay Area, who grew roots in Black culture at the historically Black and exceptionally proud Howard University, would decades later emerge in this moment as a beacon of progress.
7: I'm most excited about the first Black woman vice president of the United States.
5: And she's part of an administration that has made racial healing and reconciliation a centerpiece. But these are uncertain times. And if this moment and her story were made for history, then history might warn against any sense of solace in symbolism.
2: Stand this is not Antifa! This is the violent people! These are Americans!
5: Look at the flag! A form of weaponized and politicized whiteness, domestic terror, political upheaval, and right-wing populism, This kind of clapback has almost always followed racial or social progress, especially black progress. At nearly every turn where this country bent toward truer freedom, there was a vicious response. Emancipation and reconstruction were followed by a period known as redemption and the rise of the Klan and other terror organizations who tried to lynch us into submission. The civil rights movement was met with church bombings and assassinations. And in more recent years, the election of President Barack Obama triggered the resurgence of hate groups, a spike in gun sales, and it also gave rise to Donald Trump, who wielded white grievance and insecurity like a cudgel, and whose followers marred the peaceful transition of power with death and violence. If past is prologue and history is our guide, we're left to wonder can this moment in american history be different and can this country defy expectations the way vice president kamala harris has her entire life for more on the significance of this moment let's bring in motivational speaker and host of the podcast on a move mike africa jr attorney activist and mayor of jackson mississippi chakwe antar lumumba mayor lumumba let's start with you here Kamala Harris, a black woman as vice president, it's a huge sign of progress, but does her election really move the pin of racial progress any further?
1: Uh, well, first and foremost, uh, thank you for the opportunity to join this discussion. Uh, I look forward to our conversation. Uh, I think that Kamala's election uh, is, is a seminal uh, moment in our history, uh, in our struggle as a people I think it's also a moment where the nation is taking witness of, of what we've always known about black women, uh, the grace, the power, uh, the ability to make uh, something out of nothing that they've always, always displayed in our history. Uh, but I would caution us to become, uh, in becoming too intoxicated in this moment, uh, much in the same way that we learned after the election of Obama. Uh, that the oppressive forces that don't want to see those type of seminal victories take place, uh, they don't uh, retreat and and go into the shadows and say, well, they've won. Uh, We've seen history move forward, and and so we we no longer need to voice our objection. And and so we see uh, a, a reaction
5: to these type of seminal victories, and so we should anticipate that going forward. Mayor, her, her ascension also leaves no black women in the Senate at all. Her seat was filled by Alex Padilla. Is that a further blow in terms of black representation?
1: Uh, well, the fact that, that we're still confronting
5: these first in our representation
1: uh, as we look at black representation in the Senate and and sp- uh, particularly female uh, black representation uh, is is a sign that, that we have a long way to go. Uh, you know, we have for a long time been struggling to have leadership that looks like us. Uh, our mission must not only be to have leadership that looks like us, but in addition, leadership that thinks like us. And so both on both fronts, we still have a lot of progress to make.
5: Mike, uh, you and your family understand the carceral system intimately. Now, Kamala Harris made her name as a prosecutor in a criminal justice system that's resulted in the mass incarceration of black men in particular. After the death of George Floyd, she did co-introduce legislation in the Senate to reform policing. But what do you make of the space the vice president occupies as a black woman within the criminal justice system?
3: I think I think when people become politicians like this, I think they got to be careful that they don't become the house Negro. You know, um, mm-hmm. my dad has a statement where he says, just because they have a different view, uh, hue doesn't mean they have a different view. You know, and. Um, They were trained and educated and taught by the oppressors that we're up against. So um, I think that it would be foolish for us to think that they wouldn't be a part of the same system that's oppressing us. If they're not, that's good. But history has shown that um, we have Daniel Camerons, we have uh, Clarence Thomases, we have Wilson Goods. So um, and Wilson Good was the mayor when the government dropped the bomb on on my family. So um, you know, you really can't. You really can't look at this thing based on the color of somebody's skin. You got to look at this thing based on the the, the value of their deeds. And and we 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 haven't seen what we've seen so far. Really, is not that good.
5: Now, I'm not saying this applies to Kamala Harris at all. But as we've all heard the saying, all skin folk and kin folk. Uh, But but I want to also talk about Joe Biden and his past. Right, he's had to apologize for his so-called tough on crime past, which helped destroy black families, including his role in the 1994 crime bill. How do you want to see this administration tackle tackle criminal justice reform? And is a Biden-Harris administration actually poised to do anything about it, Mike? Well, it, listen, you know, you prison
3: prison reform is, uh, is 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 for me is a stepping stone. It might might be a stepping stone on the way to prison abolition. You know, um, the the, the, pat- the fact is that there are so many people that are in prison that, that don't be- that belong in prison, but there's a lot of people walking the street that, that really should be in prison if, if you want to do things equally. Um, so it's, it's a, it may be a stepping stone, and, and prison is a microcosm of society. And the way that um, society is geared, it's geared to promote crime and and it's it's geared to strip away the resources for the people so that we, you know, uh, become destructive instead of constructive. Uh, So, you know, with this administration the way it is, um, I really don't have any faith until I see something proven to to, to help us as a people.
5: You know, I want to bring in Latasha Brown, co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. Latasha, obviously, Kamala Harris broke through this glass ceiling in some ways, uh, but I wonder if this is actually a moment. Do you believe of real racial progress? Certainly, as a woman, uh, but given her past as a prosecutor, given as uh, Mike said, you know, all skin folk ain't necessarily kinfolk. What do you make of this moment?
0: I think this moment is a moment of great opportunity. I think Kamala Harris, the fact that she was a prosecutor and that she actually knows this system, I think this is a moment that we can actually see transformative leadership. I think this is a moment that that the recognition from President Biden of all the pain that was caused with the crime bill, that he can actually make a statement, that he can reverse that, that he can lead on this space of what we need, what we need is a, we need a complete reformation of the criminal justice system. I think that Kamala Harris could actually take her experience, you know, as a learning lesson, I think that she could take this mandate of people literally putting them in office as an opportunity completely restructure criminal justice reform in this country, that we actually are leading from a place of justice and that the the importance of humanity and not just a punitive environment. So I actually think this is a tremendous moment of opportunity. The question is, is the administration gonna take advantage of this opportunity they've been given by the people?
5: Mayor Lumumba, given your experience in office, how can the activism we saw over the last year transition into actual policy? And who moves politicians more, right? Protesters or voters?
1: Well, I think that this moment really signifies that, that uh, the community still has a role to play, uh, that our activism doesn't end at the ballot box. Uh, it doesn't end uh, when we have demonstrations on, on a few days that we have to continue to be engaged. Uh, and as we're talking about Kamala Harris, as we're talking about the Biden administration, our responsibility is to hold them accountable uh, continuously. Uh, there is, uh, as, as Brother Africa said, Uh, There is uh, much to be proven, uh, but it is our responsibility to hold them accountable uh, and charge them with the responsibility of seeing the change that we want to see. When we look at the criminal justice system, as you have mentioned, uh, we have to know that there is a dependence in this nation in our criminal justice system, uh, that it's, it's not just... Uh, a matter of wanting criminal justice reform, we have to recognize that we have economic dependence on our criminal justice system. Look at all of the people that our criminal justice system pays. It pays the lawyers, it pays the judges, it pays uh, the law enforcement, and we have more law enforcement today than we've ever had in history. We have our our, city police and our county police and our state police and our federal police and our secret police and our secret police police who watch the secret police, not even getting into probation and parole officers and prison guards. Uh, And so all of that depends on an over-incarceration of our society. Uh, And so that leads to the conflicts that we see in our community. And so it's more than just making the decision that we wanna see quote-unquote prison justice reform. We have to find a substitute economic um uh in an economy a substitute economy uh to replace our codependence on a criminal justice system which is oppressive
5: You know, I want to ask ask you all, in in this moment as we ask the question, you know, what is owed to black America in terms of uh, moving forward? Is it too early, too soon to talk about this idea of reparations? I know conservatives certainly don't want to have that conversation. Liberals are also saying, hey, let them get in office and settle first. But where do you all stand on this idea of a a real substantive conversation on reparations for, for descendants of enslaved people? And I want to start with you, Latasha.
0: You know, I think that the conversation around reparations is actually 200 years too late. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, that the, the, we, should be, we should have been talking about it, but actually say that, oh, we've got to find the right time. When is the right time for justice? The truth of the matter is there was an atrocity that happened to people of African descent in this country that actually was the foundation of building wealth that America stands as the wealthiest country in the world primarily because of not just the free labor and the exploitation of land, but also um, the, the, the the value of how they use and mortgage black bodies to actually underwrite the, the stock market. So I think that when we're talking about the conversation of, of reparations, it is always the right time to talk about reparations. It is always a, a right time to talk about where a community that has contributed to the foundation, the economic foundation of this country, yet continues to lag behind in every single category because structural racism has been built in exploiting our bodies, exploiting our labor, and not recognizing our humanity.
3: I 100% agree. Why should, why should we work and not get paid? We're talking about moving things forward and, and getting um, uh, to a place of equality and justice. How is it possible that we can work and be the ones who built this country and not even get paid for it? And we're the ones living in poverty. And we're the ones that are, are stuck in these prisons uh, disproportionately. We're the ones um, that are high risk for COVID because we don't have the proper treatment because of healthcare not really supporting us. I 100% agree. We should get paid for the work that we've done. Mayor Lumumba? Uh,
1: I would I would agree with my co-panelists uh, that, that this is a conversation that uh, this should no longer be a conversation. Uh, action should have ensued a long time ago. Uh, I would just caution that, that as we look at the uh the structure of reparations that that we have to keep in mind that reparations doesn't look like gaining entry into the house of your oppressor it looks like owning your own house it looks like how do we build self-determined communities and and build uh means of producing not only wealth but but recreating and and building culture uh and so you know i I think that that is a part of the conversation that is also uh lacking and, and and often absent uh when we have these type of conversations
5: The last question I have for you obviously has been a substantive, kind of heavy conversation, conversation that we wrestle with in our communities and our households every single day. Uh, But I want to ask each of you, what do you find hope in in this moment? Is there anything that gives you some hope that we might actually be okay? Mm Latasha?
0: Well, the first thing I did right was the day I started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. Hold on. Anytime people operate in their agency, and we stand in our gifting, and we stand for what we know is right, that there—that is progress. That the progress is that people are really organizing ourselves. Organized power is realized power. So, what gives me hope are the people of the, the the people of my community. That's who gives me hope. The people, mm-hmm. humanity.
5: Like, man, I'm not going to ask you to sing, but I do want to ask you if you find what you find <laughs> hope in, in this moment.
3: I agree with my. I agree with her totally. Listen, um. Community is really important. I, I was born in prison. My parents spent 40 years in prison. I watched the smoke in the air from the bomb that was dropped on my family, that burned 11 of my family members alive, including five of my little brothers and sisters that were children. And um, what has kept me sane throughout all of this is community, you know, my mem- the members of my family, the members of the activism community that's been supporting me, building community. I have hope in us. That's what I have hope in.
1: Elamumba? Uh, I would say what gives me hope is the understanding that the greatest organizer of all time is oppression. It is oppression that gives clarity to our people. And and we see the type of organization, the type of activism that we're seeing from young people. uh, And I believe this is a moment that we have to concretize that. We have to take it from its mystical, mysterious place uh, and organize. But seeing young people uh, take, uh, you know, take their issues to the streets, uh, take their issues to uh, the, the halls of where elected officials sit uh, and challenge them gives me hope. Every modern movement of change has
5: been led by young people,
1: and so that's what, what encourages me.
5: Mike Africa Jr., Mayor Chakwe Antar Lumumba, Latasha Brown, thank you all so much for joining me. Thanks, Thanks for having us on the We found ourselves at a crossroads, one that has wound its way through history to this very moment. Over peaks of racial progress, and down valleys of hate and racism. But if we've learned anything from this journey, our journey is that a way forward won't come easily. And at times, things might get so dark that it's hard to see right from left or how things will ever change. But it's also true that if we amplify our voices and our light, maybe, just maybe, we'll find our way. Thank you all and be well.
3: Like John, we've got a. Keep getting into that good trouble. He knew that nonviolent protest is patriotic. For four years,
0: you marched and organized for equality and
9: justice. The new dawn balloons as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only
0: we're brave enough to be it.